Well, today we want to talk about Rabbi Jesus. What better reading could we have had to introduce Rabbi Jesus than John chapter 3? Did you notice when we read what Nicodemus said in verse 2? Let's come to verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, here it is, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except Emmanuel, God with us. This is an extraordinary statement from a leader of the Jews who were determined to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring about his crucifixion. They would have none of his claims. And here is one of their leaders who came to Jesus by night, no doubt, lest any other member of the council saw him and declared his faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's remarkable. Now in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that, that's a startling statement. Without being born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. No wonder Nicodemus was stunned. On the other hand, we notice the margin says born from above. It isn't just a matter of being born of a mother's womb where Nicodemus misunderstood. But there is some effect from the Father that brings us to the point where we have been born again. Our hearts have been opened to receive the engrafted word which is able to make us wise unto salvation. So in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is what he means by being born again. Now look, here in verse 5, he does not say born of water and born of spirit. This is one birth, born of water and spirit. The water is obvious with the baptism. What is the spirit? It is the spirit-given word of God. It is the gospel of God. And so without this, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And here we are. We've been born of the flesh. That flesh is what we are. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In this case, there's no water. So this is the change of nature when Christ has come. And after the judgment seat, once approved, we shall be born of spirit and being given deathlessness to continue to help Christ in the kingdom. Isn't it interesting that the record says, Nicodemus said, Rabbi. It's not the only occasion, of course, that our title is taken from John chapter 1, verse 49. And here on the very slightest uh, contact, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Rabbi. This is astonishing that he uses that term. What does it mean? What is implied? It is a title of honour. It is a title of respect. And the word means 
master. All right, you might think it means a teacher. It actually means master because he is more than a teacher. He's a teacher with a difference. This kind of teacher leads by example, as the best teachers do. And to give you a contrast to see what uh, I'm driving at here, Christ said in Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. And that means that saying and doing not makes void the teaching. All ecclesial offices, and particularly those who take a public role in ecclesial life, must be examples to the flock. Otherwise their teaching has little effect, is of little value. As a young brother, I went on a Sunday School Teachers Weekend course, run by the Christadelphians, of course, and uh, we had two or three brethren there who were teachers. One was uh, an instructor in a teacher's training college. But the one I want to quote is Brother Alfred Nichols. He was the headmaster of a school, I suppose we'd say school principal today, and uh, he became the editor of the Christadelphian mag magazine subsequently. But he said this, and I never forgot it, in the end, it's not so much what you teach, but the personality of the teacher that is remembered. And I, when I look back over my school days, one teacher shines out. He was totally dedicated to us children and he brought us on marvellously. And in every way he was an example. As a matter of fact, he never ever came to school and taught without wearing a suit. Just as a, an aside, an interesting aspect of this here. So what I want to say out of this is, learning is not so much about collecting facts. Oh yes, we have to collect facts. We have to learn those. But in the end, it's not so much about collecting facts, but it is more about gaining wisdom for a useful, godly life by imitating those closest to us. We absorb their way of life because we admire them. We absorb their character. Our rabbi is Jesus Christ. It means we don't just walk with him. It means we walk like him. Now in Amos chapter 3 verse 3, Amos says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? How can two walk together and be agreed? Two separate individuals with their own will, with their own ways, how can they fully be at one? Only if one is a teacher, or a leader, or better, one is a leader, and the other is a follower. Now you might think that's a puzzle. Let me explain. 
In John chapter 10, verse 30, Christ said, I and my Father are one. How could they be one? Because Christ said, Not my will, but thine be done. The Father was the leader. Christ was the follower. But he now has become our leader and we cannot walk with him if we have any reservations. If we question at times some of the things that the Word of God says. Or if we decide to go our own way and do our own thing which the modern world does. That way we cannot walk together. My youngest son at one time was troubled over what he saw in the brotherhood as perhaps unfair or not the best way of doing things. And Brother Ian Dangerfield said to him, never mind what's going on in the brotherhood. Just read the Gospels and get to know that man, Jesus Christ. I think that was fantastic advice. Never mind what's going on in the brotherhood. We human, there are always going to be problems. And it is necessary that there are problems because it is the way we deal with them which shows whether we will be approved by Christ when he comes or not. Just read the Gospels and get to know that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we want now out of Scripture are examples of rabbi-discipleship relationship. And first let me mention Moses and Joshua. Now as you know, Moses set up the tent of meeting outside the camp. And there he went to commune with God. Joshua was also there. What is interesting we read is that Moses, of course, was a married man and he had two boys. So when he had finished communing with God, he left the tent of meeting. But Joshua stayed in it. You see, Joshua was learning to live, to breathe, to think just as Moses did. Not because he had set his eyes on becoming the next leader, but because he so admired Moses and wanted to be like him. We come to Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was not a young man. We don't know his age. But obviously he was grown up and uh, plowing when Elijah came along and called him. And Elisha gave up everything to become Elijah's servant. And a disciple of a rabbi is a servant. It says in the second of Kings, chapter 3 and verse 11, that Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah. And he would not be separated from his rabbi. So when it was time for Elijah to go, Elijah wouldn't leave him alone. He followed him to Bethel. They went on to Jericho. He still wouldn't leave. They came to Jordan. And as the whirlwind drove them asunder, Elisha cried out, 
my father, my father. But he was a grown man. You see how that relationship has developed? Just come for a moment to Proverbs chapter 29. Here is an example of what had happened with Elijah and Elisha. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 21. Verse 21. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. Think about that. The servant eventually becomes a son. And he becomes the father to the child as he grows up. My father, my father. And as Elijah was taken away, Elisha got what he wanted, a double spirit of Elijah. So here was a father-servant relationship which became a father-son relationship. And if we stay with this relationship, get as close as we can to Jesus Christ, at his coming we will not be parted from him, but we will receive a double portion of his spirit and like him become deathless, immortal, spirit nature. See, let's move on now. Paul and Timothy. Here's another wonderful couple. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, we needn't turn to it, but in Philippians 2, 20 to 22, Paul says, I have no man so, note the word, I have no man so like-minded who will naturally care for your state. And then he goes on to say, as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. They came from different countries with different backgrounds. But it was as a son with the Father he had become like his rabbi, like-minded. Now, he would not naturally care for the ecclesia of Philippi. They were Paul's spiritual children. But he did naturally care for them. He had absorbed his spiritual father, Paul, and became him, in a sense. We'll turn to the first of Corinthians in chapter 4. We'll turn to this passage. In the first of Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 15, Paul writes, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And the word followers here is imitators. We're not followers. We are imitators of Paul. He says, verse 17, for this cause, sorry, uh, verse 15, I was actually going to read first, wasn't it? For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He was their father. He wasn't just an instructor. 
be ye followers, imitators of me. Now, wait a minute. How does this work out? We're to be imitators of Christ. Why then should we be imitators of Paul? Is that dividing us? No, it's not. If you turn to the first of Corinthians chapter 11 now, the first of Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, see what the Apostle Paul says here, chapter 11 and verse 1. Here he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Imitators. Because he was an imitator of Christ, it is safe to follow him too. It still brings us closer to Christ. And the ecclesia at Corinth saw, they hadn't seen Jesus Christ in his ministry, but they saw Paul in his, and they saw his sufferings. They saw what he endured. And they began to understand the sufferings of Christ by whom we are redeemed. Paul walked with Christ. He didn't just walk with him. He walked like him. So we have Rabbi Jesus and his disciples. What was it like to be a disciple of Jesus? They walked miles with him. They talked with him. They listened to him, they ate with him, they slept with him, they lived with him for three and a half years. They acted as his servants. They learned to change their ways and their thinking. They were growing into, into what? His image and his likeness. So we'll come to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. The Gospel of John and chapter 1 and here in John chapter 1 we'll read verse 38. What we're leading to here is that John the Baptist had said, Behold, this is the Son of God. On the next day he pointed out to two of his disciples that this was the Lamb of God. And the two disciples followed the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 38, Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? What a strange thing to say. Why didn't they say, Teach us? They said, Where dwellest thou? They wanted more than a teacher. They wanted a rabbi they could live with and learn from. And he says in verse 39, He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Rabbi Jesus. We come to chapter 4 of John here. In chapter 4, the Lord had come to the well at Samaria, and in verse 7 of John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. 
There's two problems here. One is he's spoken to a woman he did not know. And secondly, she was a Samaritan. But then in verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so he talks to her and he explains he can give her living water. We come to verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marvelled that he talked with a woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Why talkest thou with her? They wouldn't have done it. The Lord's behaviour was quite unexpected again and again and again. So here we have him speaking to this woman. So we'll go to verse 33 here. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him what to eat? They were his servants, you see. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish the work. And he did, didn't he? What does he say when he was crucified? It is finished. And the work involved Gentiles, as well as Jews. So we read in verse 40 here. So when the Samaritans would come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy say, for we have heard him ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Samaritans that the Jews would have nothing to do with, they didn't have the problem that Jews had, is this Messiah or not? They said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. Where have we read the Saviour of the world before? Zaphnath Paneer, the name given to Joseph by Pharaoh in Egypt, meaning Saviour of the world. That was Egyptians. Did the Jews in Egypt follow Moses? No, not originally. Isn't it interesting? There's a lot of things to be learned, you know. In Luke chapter 7, for example, in verse 37 to 50, the disciples learned that harlots can be saved. Let me ask you a question. If a harlot walked into your meeting, what would you do? Would you be embarrassed? Would you ignore her and hope she went away? Would you speak to her? Would you make her welcome? I'm not sure, to be quite honest with you, I'm not quite sure what I would do. It's never happened to me yet. Perhaps it never will. But the disciples learned here that harlots can be saved. Why? Because Christ explained to them she loved much and therefore her sins are forgiven. It must have been very hard for the disciples to reconcile these things in their own minds in the way in which they had been brought up and the way in which they had lived. Well, everybody in Israel hated tax gatherers. 
I don't know that they're too popular with us either. But they hated them. And Christ comes to Levi. Follow me, he said. And what did Levi do? He says he left all and followed him. And what is more, he made a feast at his house for other tax collectors. And the disciples had a problem. Should they go in or should they not? What eat with tax men who were the servants of Rome? You know, there are aspects here which reflect very directly on our lives. The disciples must have found it difficult. And so do we. If we're honest with ourselves, we do. It goes against all that we have naturally followed in our lives. You see the difficulty because the Pharisees said, Why do you eat with publicans and sinners? And Christ answered, all this is in Luke 5, verse 27 to 32. Christ answered, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now here's a strange thing in life. You're probably like me, you think, oh, I really like that person. Look at the way they live. They'd make such a good Christadelphian. And they're not interested. And often it's those who are baptised who we would hardly have expected could have done that. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, when I was baptised, we ran two Sunday schools, one at the meeting for Christadelphian children and one at a school a mile away for outsiders' children. There was a hundred pupils in each school. And one of the girls at the, the outsiders' school where I taught, one of the girls was baptised. But after a while, she stopped attending the meeting. So she was seen. Oh no, she didn't need to attend the meeting anymore. She had become a nurse. And apparently she thought being a nurse would be all that God required of her. And she no longer needed to attend the meetings. This is where sometimes God has a better idea of what is right than we do. And it must have been an awful shock when the Lord invited himself to Zacchaeus's house I always get a little bit amused about Zacchaeus. Here is the leader, the chief of the publicans, and anticipating that Jesus would come that way, he managed to climb up a tree and hide himself in the branches. He didn't want people to see him up there, but he did want to see Jesus. And so he, the Lord looked up and saw Zacchaeus. And he says, come down. I must eat at thy house today. What on earth did the disciples think of that? Going into the house of the chief of the publicans, I think the Lord saw the consternation on their faces. Because he turned to them and he said, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham, he was. He was an honest publican. Let's take another one. In John chapter 8, we have the woman taken in adultery. 
No, I don't agree with Dr. D. I think it is one of the worst sins that can possibly be committed. I'm sure you don't either. And nor did the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says to this woman, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He didn't condemn her. He didn't forgive her. He said, go and sin no more, and it would be the subsequent pattern of her life which would determine her future. Why did the Lord do that? He took all the circumstances into account. He saw beyond the action to the motivation and to the circumstances. Now, in 1947, there was a movement for reunion between the Central Fellowship and the Berean Fellowship in England. The Central Fellowship Committee met with the Berean Committee, and of course, what came up was the question of marriage out of the truth and of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The Central Fellowship Committee refused to legislate in advance. They said, we're not going to legislate in advance on hypothetical cases. They said, each case must be taken on its own merits. I agree with that. So did Brother Thomas. So did Brother Roberts. So did Jesus Christ. Of course, it gets worse in a sense. The Lord comes to Capernaum. We'll come to Matthew chapter 8. And in our minds, go to Capernaum with the Lord. In Matthew chapter 8, we read from verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes to the Lord. We read of it, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. He knew what, the, the, the centurion didn't ask. He left it to the Lord's own decision, what should be done in the case. I will come and heal him. The centurion answered in verse 8 and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. And so it goes on. Now this is absolutely extraordinary. When it came to healing the Jews, they wanted to be touched, they wanted his hand to be placed on them. To be healed. This man recognized the Lord could heal at a distance without even seeing or going near his servant. And verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Isn't that interesting? The disciples are learning some hard lessons aren't they I have not found so great faith no not in Israel there was another case recorded in Mark chapter 9 here the disciples forbade one 
casting out devils in Christ's name. And Christ said, forbid him not. But he's casting out devils in your name. He's not a follower with us. Forbid him not. You know? The disciples had so much to learn. So do we. He said, he that is not against us is on our part. That's something we have to learn. So, another case, James and John. This one, uh, I find, again, quite amusing in its own way. James and John wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And Christ says, you know not what spirit you're of. Well, we've got Christadelphians like that, haven't we? I've met brethren who'd love to call down fire sometimes. We know not what spirit we're of. Now, somebody's going to say, all these accounts are all very well, but it's giving an unbalanced picture of Christ. Well, there are two sides to the coin. And to be fair, I should mention that he is also the judge. There were the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they were the most respected members of society. I'm sure the disciples looked up to the scribes and the Pharisees and in some ways were in awe of them. But in Matthew 23, eight times the Lord Jesus Christ says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! There can be no compromise with the truth of God. Judas. The Lord said in the upper room, one of you shall betray me. And they said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Judas put the question slightly differently. He said, Master, is it I? And the word is Rabbi. Rabbi. Is it I? And he was planning the basis treachery. That's in Matthew 26, verse 25. In the same chapter in Matthew 26 and in verse 49, we have Judas leading the soldiers. He was at the front. He led the soldiers into the garden in Gethsemane. And he comes up to Christ and he says, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And the word Master is once again Rabbi. Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. What deceit. What hypocrisy. Can you get lower than that? We love our Rabbi, the Son of God. Surely none of us would willingly let him down. And if we do, we could be like Peter, who went out and wept bitterly. Tears of repentance will not harm us, but do us much good. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And here, in Matthew chapter 18, we'll start reading at the beginning of the chapter. Matthew 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, so that's what filled their minds. 
They still hadn't learned what it is to be the disciple of a rabbi. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble himself. A child is humble enough to want to copy his parents, will model himself upon his parents, try to talk like his parents and those he admires. We're living in a different age. It goes back to a time when a son followed his father and he went out into the fields with his father and tried to work with his father. And it was his ambition to be like his father. The daughter worked with her mother in the house and in the kitchen and in various other activities. It's not like that today. We, we admire our independence, not realising we can never be independent. Our lives are dependent upon God. There is no such thing as being independent. In Matthew 19, verse 13 to 15, he says, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. The, the, the disciples push the children away. This is not for children. Forbid them not to come unto me. In five years or less, who knows how long, those children will have grown up. They will face the truth and the question of baptism and they will remember Jesus Christ. They'll remember his tenderness, his warmth, his kindness and respond accordingly. So what we find is this. A true disciple lived with his rabbi as his servant. He absorbed the rabbi's life. It was a personal transformation. In effect, the disciple becomes his rabbi over time. Think about this passage. It's in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yes, we know the words well. Have you really thought about what it means to deny oneself? Christ didn't indeed. And he went to crucifixion to do his Father's will. That's complete denial of self. And denial of self is really the pattern of the disciple of the rabbi. We undertake this when we're baptised. We put away all that we once were. We resurrected to a new life in Jesus Christ. And we take up our cross and follow him. Well, we're not called upon to actually be crucified. But in denying ourselves, we seek to deny and put to death the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and do the Father's will. Matthew chapter 10. Look at these words. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24. Matthew 10 verse 24. The disciple is not above his master, 
nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be, notice the words, as his master, not a follower, as his master, and the servant as his Lord. That's being a disciple to the rabbi. Brethren and sisters, let's make a conscious effort to follow our rabbi's life and teaching. Let his word be our constant companion. Because the change doesn't come overnight. It takes time, of course, and it takes humility. In Matthew 23, verse 7 to 11, he says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Greatest? Your servant? In ecclesial life, we have plenty who want to be leaders. What we really need is brethren and sisters who want to be servants. You see, it takes a lot of humility to be a disciple. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even that death. Can we surrender in the same way? Can we love our Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and our neighbour as ourselves? I think we have a need here. We need a key to success so that people see us as the image of Christ, our Rabbi. And I find one key here in Romans 1 verse 16 where the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. When we go out, don't be ashamed of what we are. Don't be frightened to speak the gospel. We have the power of God unto salvation. Now that phrase is used by Paul when in the second of Timothy chapter 3 he says, in the last days perilous times shall come. He's not talking of the world. It's always been like that out there. He's talking about the ecclesia. And in verse 5 of the second of Timothy 3, the last of the items, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Hmm. Our present task is to let the power of God take us forward. Look, our present task is not to change the world. Our present task is to change ourselves. Change of the world will come when Christ has come. It's our own changes we're concentrating upon. To genuinely model our lives on our rabbi will be a life of far greater fulfilment than this world will ever offer us. A life of fellowship with father and son. Could anything else be more wonderful? We'll turn to the Song of Solomon and chapter 1 to conclude. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, 
And here in chapter 1, the bride speaks in verse 1. What does the bride say? Verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. We remember him week by week with bread and wine. How much more shall we love his appearing and his closeness? She says in verse 3, Because of the savour of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love me. All his character is a fragrance, a delightful character, a fragrance to us, which we so admire. She says, verse 4, draw me, and her virgins, the individual members of the bride actually, the virgin says, we will run after thee. She says, the king hath brought me into his chambers. The virgins say, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. She has gone through ages of persecution. In verse 6, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me like the keeper of... They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. First the persecution came from the Jews, then it came the Gentile period. And if you have any knowledge at all of the history of the churches, though they have preached the love of Christ, what they have shown is the most extreme cruelty. So the bride says in verse 7, Tell me, O thou, whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Why can't we rest at noon shade with the flock of Christ, with the true ecclesia? Why do we have to turn aside to the apostasy? And the answer comes back in verse 8. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, that's how Christ sees us, the fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. We have brethren and sisters who have gone before. They have been wonderful examples of faith, of righteousness, of obedience. We walk in their footsteps, we should do, with their example. Feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents, the children. We feed ourselves and we feed our children. With the word of the shepherds that have gone before and still teach us, we have their books, we have their words. I hope we're not neglecting them.